the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've gotten a little bit of everything in here. We've gotten some encouragement. We've gotten some solid doctrine that was a lot of fun to go through, I think. We've gotten some good moral instruction. This is why we teach verse by verse through the Bible. There are other ways to do it, but this is why we do it this way. Because while in your mind you might think, well, you're only really going to get one thing going through one book of the Bible. It's just not true. There's so much to discuss and there's so much to learn. And we want to get the whole counsel of God. Now, to remind you as we come to the end here about the context of this letter and why it was written in the first place, you remember Paul and Silas and Timothy on the second missionary journey had gone to Thessalonica after the events in Philippi, which is when they were thrown into jail after casting the demon out of that girl and there was the earthquake that opened it up and the jailer was saved, that whole story. The next stop was Thessalonica. And they were preaching in the synagogue and the Gentiles were listening, but the Jews got jealous because all of these well-off and leading women of the city were becoming Christians and following Paul instead of following them. So as often happened, they started a riot. They got some of the worthless men, it says, of the city to make trouble, dragged them before the judgment seat. Oh, actually, they tried to find Paul and Silas, but all they could grab was Jason, the man who had been hosting them in his home. And they said in Acts 17, 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That happened in Thessalonica. We all love that phrase. And Jason was forced to put up security for them and, you know, basically insurance and that was one of the reasons they left, and they fled to Berea. They weren't there very long. Paul liked to spend a long time. He spent a year and a half in Corinth, spent three years in Ephesus, only got to spend a short time, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months at the most in Thessalonica. But the Jews from Thessalonica chased him to Berea, so he gets on a boat and goes to Athens and then eventually to Corinth, where Silas and Timothy finally caught him up. And he sends Timothy back to check on the Thessalonians because he says, it's been so long and we left when there was persecution beginning. Go see how they're doing. And we saw this in, in chapters 2 and 3, especially Paul telling that story, that Timothy got there. He saw the church was doing very well, so he brings good news back to Paul. So Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote this letter. And I think we've seen that this is a very positive letter. It's not like Galatians, where the very beginning of the book, he has to say, I am amazed that you are so quickly being turned aside from the thing that I taught you. Or Corinthians, where he's got a lot of great things to say, but he's also got long chapters of correction to bring to the church. It's positive. Except for maybe that segment on the rapture, I don't think Paul had anything to correct in Thessalonica. And so he was so excited by that, he's like, let's just, let's just keep the connection going. Timothy will go back, he'll sneak back into Thessalonica and, and keep this up. And as we come to the end, there's a few more specific pieces of instruction. Remember, the first three chapters were encouragement and answering what happened between the two of them. And chapters four and five were instruction. And there are a lot of different subjects. And the last one is related to the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And something the Thessalonians had to understand, and we all need to understand this, is that the church is to be a congregation where God himself abides. That this is not just any gathering of people. God is here. 1 Corinthians 14, 25 talks about unbelievers coming into the church and falling on their face and saying, God is really among you. And that's what the church is to be. This is why when we come to church, we can expect to be changed. 
that just by being here and participating in what goes on, things that we have ignored and neglected and would never have addressed in life get brought to the surface and we deal with them. And morally we're changed and the direction of our lives can be totally changed in the church because God is here. Because our prayers matter. That we don't just pray because it makes us feel better. It does make us feel better. But we believe that we have a God who answers prayer because God is here. And that the Holy Spirit doesn't just speak through his word, but as we're going to read today, he also speaks directly to his people whom he has indwelt, which is a wonderful thing that the word teaches us. And these final verses here, they're short, they're pithy. This, this whole last section has been like one quick sentence after another. And they provide a, a very strong corrective to two extremes in the church. Every Christian believes that God is in our midst. But you have some who believe we love having God in our midst so much that anytime anybody says they have a word from the Lord, we have to accept it. And they get tossed about, as the writers of Scripture would say, by every wind of doctrine, and they're not tethered to anything. But then you've also got those who deny the power of the Spirit, even though they acknowledge His presence. Yes, He's here, but He better keep His mouth shut. We've got things the way that we like them and the way that we have them, and we don't want to disrupt any of that. Things could get very complicated. Well, they're not wrong, but it would be wrong to shut down the Holy Spirit. And we ourselves here, we try our best to be biblical. And when you try to be rigidly biblical like we try to be, a lot of times that opens you up to things that maybe you are not culturally comfortable with. Because we want to be open to the Lord's voice. And we are open to the movement of the Holy Spirit in this church. And I think at the beginning of a new year, it's good to be reminded of that. Didn't plan it that way? Seems like the Lord planned it that way. Because if God is here in our midst, and he is, then that should change our expectations for our meetings and our personal lives. We're not just coming together. It's not a PTA meeting where we can kind of expect how things are going to go. You know, it's not a chamber of commerce meeting where you've got the agenda written out and this is exactly what's going to happen. We come to church and we plan and we structure and we get ready and prepare. But we are always open and looking for the possibility that God can intervene and make himself known. Because it's his house. It's not our house. And the Lord always has permission to step in and say, today, I want to address this. And that can happen on an individual level. It can happen on a corporate level. It can even happen nationally. And we call that revival. And maturity is coming to realize that possibility more every day. Because being a Christian is about knowing God, isn't it? Knowing the Father who sent his Son and who sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. So we're going to read these these short, quick little verses that have so much behind them. And then we'll get to the end, which is the, the farewell portion of this book. And we'll finish it up today. Let's read verses 19 through 22. We'll just read this whole section here. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let me read it again. It's real short. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. These four verses go together as a single piece of instruction. Each individual sentence is important, and you can pull it out and just talk about that. We're going to do that today. But they really ought to be studied and interpreted as a unit. And this first verse, verse 19 
is what I would call the controlling imperative of this section. That in verse 19, he, he gives the point, and then in verses 20, 21, and 22, he explains how, and he gives a more specific instruction. He says, do not quench the spirit. The word there is spenumi in Greek. It means to extinguish or to stifle or to suppress, usually in terms of a fire, putting out the campfire. When we would have bonfires, we had some land at the church I used to go to. We'd be out in the dark with the fire going, and then it's time to go. And before you leave, you have to make sure that you quench the fire, or you're going to have a much larger fire that will be much harder to quench. But he says not to do that. For God's Holy Spirit. Do not extinguish the Spirit. Do not stifle the Spirit. Do not suppress the Spirit, you could say. Put very simply, the Bible uses the metaphor of fire to describe the Holy Spirit. So the writers are saying, don't put out the fire. Don't try to quench the fire or limit the fire or keep it from burning too bright. Now, if you're in the middle of a forest, you want to keep things from setting on fire. But when we're talking about God's Holy Spirit, Paul says, get out of the way. Don't try to quench the Holy Spirit. Now, we've got to understand the theology behind this because there's a lot that's assumed in that sentence. None of it's new to you, but it's good to remember. Jesus promised that when he ascended to his Father, he would send the Holy Spirit to be with us. Jesus operated in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his whole ministry. It began with his baptism. He came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness for 40 days and then he went back and began his ministry. Jesus did not do any works or miracles or power or preaching without the Holy Spirit. And he says, when I leave, I'm going to send you that same Holy Spirit. Which is why he can say in John 16, 7, I love this verse, John 16, 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the upper room. When he says, I'm going to be leaving, I'm going to be going back to the Father, and the disciples were full of grief, as you can imagine. And he said, no, it, it's actually better if I leave. Consider that. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish Jesus was right here, so I could just ask him, some question, or he could tell me what to do, or he could do this miracle, or even if he's not right here, if we could go and find him and go talk to him, and you could schedule an appointment to, to see Jesus. That would be great. But you know what Jesus said? He said, how about this? I'll go to heaven, and I'll send you my spirit to live inside of you. So you don't have Jesus just with you. He says, the spirit is with you, but he shall be in you. Jesus said it would be better that way because now the Holy Spirit makes the presence of Christ real in your heart. When we're little kids, we say, we got saved, I asked Jesus into my heart. That's not technically theologically true if you want to be a snob about it. Technically, you invited the Holy Spirit into your heart. But since the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ and we believe in the perichoretic relationship, it's actually okay to say that. When I went to seminar, it used to drive me crazy because it seems like some guys had nothing better to do than to take popular Christian phrases and dismantle them theologically and feel really smart about themselves. But so every now and then I like to come back and say, actually, it's perfectly right to say it quite like that. So the spirit dwells inside you. Jesus' spirit is within you if you are a Christian, and that's better. 
He said, if I go, I will send him to you. And then on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came down upon the church. And I love that story, don't you? They're praying for 10 days, fasting, waiting in that upper room. Jesus said, don't, don't try none of that stuff I told you to do until you have the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting and waiting. And then it said that the building began to shake. There was a wind, mighty rushing wind that blew into the room. And then tongues of fire appeared above them. Now, don't think tongue like, like a lengua, you know, coming out of your mouth of fire. Tongues, flames of fire. Think Katniss Everdeen in that movie when it's coming out of her shoulders. Fire descended upon the church. And that was the Holy Spirit's power. They all began to speak in tongues. Peter comes out, scaredy cat Peter, who was cussing out little girls because he says, I don't know that man, is now standing in front of all those same people and preaching the gospel. And now people are getting saved. The Holy Spirit's power. They were filled with the Spirit just like Jesus was. And throughout the book of Acts, you see this over and over again, that they're at the gate beautiful and Peter looks at the lame man and filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, and raised him up. Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, when they were persecuted for the first time, it said they got back together and prayed for boldness, and the Spirit shook the building they were in, and they were all filled with the Spirit again. Paul was seeing the, the, the witch, or the wizard, I guess you'd call him, speaking to the governor they were trying to preach to. And it says he was full of the Spirit and struck the guy blind. The Spirit was constantly working in the church throughout the book of Acts. This is just what Joel chapter 2 prophesied. He said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up and said, this is that. What you're seeing is that. So, to be a Christian, according to Romans, but I'm not going to dive into all that right now. To be a Christian means to be filled and empowered by the same Holy Spirit who came upon Jesus. Paul said in Romans, if you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, then you do have the spirit. So that's good news for you, maybe. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There used to be an actual temple, and that's where God's presence was. If you wanted to go and speak to God, you would go to the temple. But when Jesus died, what happened to the veil of the temple? It was ripped, right? Right down the middle. The presence of God was put into his people, and now we are his temple. So when we come together as a church, we are hosting the presence of God. And sometimes we like to talk about we've got to make sure that the presence of God is here. It's probably more accurate to say we know he's already here, but we want him to make himself known, right? It's like if, uh, if the president walked in the room and just kind of sat in the back row and didn't say anything. It's like, yeah, he's here, but, but we want him to say something. We want him to acknowledge his presence. It's much greater than that with the Lord. He's here with us because we're here and because he's in each of us. And when we come and we say things like, Lord, show us your glory. Lord, manifest your presence. It's not that we don't believe he's here already. We want him to stand up and say something. We want him to manifest himself, to show himself. Because all of that is true, in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not stifle the influence of God's Holy Spirit in the church. Do not suppress the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you talk about it like I just did, you think, well, who would want to quench the Spirit? If God is here, who would want Him to not talk? Who would want Him to not work or not show his power. But what you need to understand is not only is this a temptation that we face because sometimes God tells us what he'd like to do and we say, ooh, I don't know about that. 
sort of like the children of Israel in the Old Testament, that the Lord came down and lit the mountain on fire, and there's thunders and lightnings and trumpet sounds, and he begins to speak to the people, and they said, Moses, you talk to God, and then you talk to us. How's that? Now, to me, I go, why would you say that? Because when the Lord shows up, it's a fearful thing. So sometimes when the Spirit shows up, he points his finger on something that you'd rather not think about. That's called quenching the Spirit. And you need to also understand, by the way, that it is possible to quench the Spirit. It's possible to do that. Why would Paul instruct us to do it if it wasn't possible? But consider Acts 7.51. This is when Stephen, remember Stephen, was hauled before the Sanhedrin, the same people that killed Jesus. He runs through this big, long message. The whole point of that message in Acts 7 is, guys, the Lord doesn't just live in the temple. The Lord is everywhere, and now he's especially within his people. But he ends it by saying, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He's saying, Y'all come from a long line of people that really don't want to hear what God has to say, and you resist the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he was riding into Jerusalem, began to weep because he said, I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing. You were resisting the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, they brought a gift to the church and lied about it so that they could have people think they were really generous. And Peter said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. And the Lord struck him dead for that. He hasn't done that since, but he wanted to do it the first time it happened as a way of saying, not in my church. We don't do this here. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, Paul said not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So, yes, it is possible. God is here, but God does not force his way even among his people. There are times where sometimes God grabs us by the ear and takes us where we need to go. But when we continually resist and say no to the Lord, God will permit us to go our own way. It's called quenching the Holy Spirit. We can be like the Old Testament temple where the prophets would constantly come and say, yeah, you've got the sacrifices and the feasts and the new moons, but you're not really worshiping me. You're not really acknowledging my presence. There's a, there's a verse, I believe it's in Joel, where he says, I wish one of you priests had the guts just to go in and shut the door to the temple and say, no more sacrifices until we get our heart right. We've got to start listening to the Lord. There's that tragic story in the book of Ezekiel where he had a vision of the temple and people not only worshiping the Lord there, but worshiping all these false gods and weeping for Tammuz in the the courtyards. And he sees a vision of the presence of God get up and leave from the temple. Now, we can be that way where everything looks great. The temple is, is kept up. We come to church, we do all the things we're supposed to, but God has zero influence in our lives because we've resisted and quenched His Holy Spirit. I find a lot of times people who say, I just, I I don't hear the voice of the Lord. I used to, but I, I guess God doesn't speak to me anymore. Or they'll say, I guess I've sort of outgrown that. And really what it means is God was speaking to me, but I said no over and over and over and over again. And so God says, fine, have it your way. I'm not talking to you anymore. The Lord is is not coming to us like a slave groveling on his knee saying, please, master, please listen to me. He's like, no, I deserve your respect and your honor. I'm not going to degrade myself by continually coming to somebody who's not going to listen to a word I have to say. That's called quenching the spirit. A church can quench the spirit's power to where it's nothing but a classroom sometimes. A lot of great information being passed along, but there's no power there. 
Or maybe there's a lot of great music and a lot of great emotion, but there's no power to be changed and transformed. When you quench the Spirit because you want your church this way, and this is the way I was raised, and this is the way I like it, the Spirit comes in and says, you're kind of turning into an old wineskin. How about you let me supple you up a little bit? And you say, no way! And then countless people have gone to churches and say, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's like that temple in the book of Ezekiel. God's not there anymore. He should be. I know He is within us, but He hasn't shown Himself in a long time. Frightening possibilities, huh? Your Christian walk began with utter submission to God. You said, Lord, take my life. I submit it to you. You're dying on the cross with Christ Jesus. But sometimes along the way, you, you pick up yourself again. And you say, no, actually, I do have a few conditions, God. I, this is the way that I want it, and I refuse to change this. I'm not going to change the way I believe about that. I'm not going to change the way that I talk to her. I'm not going to change the way that I pursue my profession. I know that you'll save me, so uh, I know I'll have to deal with it when I get to heaven, but I'll worry about it then. We stake out our territory. We, we say, God, you can come into every room of the house except this one. More than that, though, it's not just that God stops speaking, but that begins to affect other people. Because as we're about to read, God has given spiritual, supernatural gifts to every member of the church. And when one person is not doing what they're supposed to do, the rest of us suffer. It's like a body, Paul says over and over again. That when one part of your body doesn't work, the rest of it knows. You ever stubbed your toe real hard? You don't think about your toes all day long until you ram it up against maybe your bed, or you got one of those metal bed frames, you know, and it just it kills. And now all of a sudden, everybody's thinking about that. You know, you don't really worry maybe about your face until all of a sudden you got something on your face you don't want people to see. It's similar to, to that in the church. When one part of the body stops working, we all notice and we all feel it, even if we're not quite sure what the problem is. We all need to be full of the Holy Spirit, submitting to Him, not quenching Him. And our predilection as a culture, we want to be skeptics of the things of God. It's odd, isn't it, that we bring that, that, that attitude that is, that is so pseudo-scientific, and I won't believe anything unless I see it, and we rail against that in the world, but then we come to the things of God, and all of a sudden we've got that same attitude in the church. And we create a Christian experience that has no supernatural element to it. That's quenching the Spirit. And the next verse gives us an example of how we avoid that. But for now, it's important for us to know. The Spirit is here. The Spirit wants to have His way. He wants to speak. He wants to work. He wants to change you. And you can resist that. Well, God will always get His way. It's called sin. It's called resisting what He wants to do. Jesus said, I wanted to, but you wouldn't let me. Acts 7, he talked about those who are stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 talks about grieving the Spirit. We can do all of those things. And we need to make sure that we don't. Whatever it looks like, we need to just determine at the beginning, God's going to have His way in my life, in my family, and in my church. So we look at verse 20 where he says, Do not despise prophecies. This is connected. I'd say the primary point is verse 19. And then... Verse 20 gives us a very common example of how people quench the Spirit. Here's one specific thing you can do to make sure you don't quench the Spirit of God. Do not despise or look down upon or neglect or forbid prophecy in the church. Now, by this term prophecies here, he's not talking about Old Testament biblical end times prophecy, but contemporary manifestations of the gift of prophecy. 
which is all part of what we talked about before. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. The Lord wrote, It shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now we all agree with that, but the next part is where we start to get some disagreement, unfortunately. What does that mean, pour out my Spirit? Well, he says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Do you see that? No distinction of gender, male and female. No distinction of age, you old men and young men. No distinction of class, even your male and female servants. All of my people will be full of my spirits, and they'll prophesy. The New Testament outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which started in Acts chapter 2, and which Peter said in Acts chapter 2, would be for all that the Lord would call, as many who, as who were far off, is tied to an outpouring of prophecy in the church. And it is very difficult to avoid that in the New Testament. Now, as ironic as it sounds, when you read a verse that says, do not despise prophecies, many, if not most churches, do not believe in contemporary prophecy today. And if somebody were to say, I have a word from the Lord, they'd say, no, you don't. We're not going to listen to it. And they make fun of other churches that do believe in those things. Or we redefine the term prophecy to mean preaching. Allow me to pop that bubble for you. The Bible makes a very clear distinction between prophets and teachers. Go ahead, read Ephesians, read 1 Corinthians 12. There's a distinction between those two things. Now, I should hope that when I'm preaching and teaching that the prophetic word is at work without sometimes me even realizing it. Sometimes I'll give an example that I haven't planned on that just feels so specific to me, and someone will come up later and say, yeah, it felt like you were talking about me. I had one time there was a, a young lady where I was just giving an altar call like I've done a thousand times. And I, I gave a very specific example, kind of painted a picture of a situation somebody could be in. And she got up and ran out of the room. And my wife kind of went after her and I said, is she okay? And she turns to my wife and she goes, how did he know? How did he know what I was doing? And it was, I was talking about like sneaking into your parents' liquor cabinet and getting drunk on the weekends and all kinds of stuff. And she was doing all this. And I had described it. I didn't know that, but the Lord knew. So, yes, those two things can overlap, but theologically they are distinct. So I'm going I'm to keep going. The most common reason that people will say we, we don't want prophecy in the church in disobedience to verse 20, is they say, well, listen, if God speaks to somebody, then that's inspired. And if it's inspired, then it's on the same level as Scripture. Therefore, it needs to be added to the Scripture. And we know we shouldn't add to the Scripture. I'm with you on that, okay? <laughs> we should not add to the Scripture. So, therefore, we don't need prophecy anymore. And that was only intended to last until we had the fullness of the biblical testimony. And now that we have it, we don't need it anymore. Now, that has the advantage of appealing to a high view of Scripture. It sounds very honoring of the Bible, doesn't it? But the problem is, the Bible doesn't say that. So if we're going to talk about having a high view of Scripture, how about we look at what the Scripture itself says? Most of the prophets in the Bible did not write anything that you call Scripture. Elisha had schools of prophets like he would have dozens of prophets with him all the time. Read through the book of 1 Samuel that Saul would come across bands of traveling prophets. And sometimes he would get too close and the Spirit would come upon him too and he would start to prophesy. It's an interesting story. But there's even characters in the Bible that didn't write anything down. The prophet Nathan that approached David. We have the prophetess Huldah who spoke to, I believe it was Josiah. She didn't write anything down. 
There's all kinds of figures and prophets in the Bible that didn't write anything. Agabus in the New Testament didn't write anything down. The writing of Scripture is tied to the giving of apostolic doctrine. It's more tied to the gift of an apostle, not a prophet. It's not talking about today new doctrine or expanded revelation. You look at the the prophets in the Bible. Most of the time, they were there to give the Lord's word for that specific situation. That the king would be going into battle and he would call upon a man of God to give him the Lord's word for that moment. Agabus gave prophecies about the famines that were going to come in and told Paul what was going to happen when he went to Jerusalem. Not disclosing new scripture but giving the Lord's word for that situation. Now, now this should, should be obvious to us. God has giving us, given us his objective word right here for all times, all situations, and all cultures. But there are specific times and specific situations and specific cultures, and God has not just abandoned us to apply what we already know, as important as that is. The Lord is with us and is constantly speaking to us for those moments. And we call those people that God uses to speak those words prophets. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Not new doctrine. We're going to talk about it in, in the next couple of verses. Somebody comes to you, says they're a prophet and has some new doctrine for you. You can show them where the door is. But the Holy Spirit who empowers all of us, empowers some of us to speak prophetic words to the church. And verse 20 tells us we are not to despise that. Are we not guilty of doing that? Now there are some wacky people that call themselves prophets. And it seems like they all have a TV show. I don't know how that happened. Or they've got a YouTube channel. Or they've got a blog. They've got some way of getting the word out because usually those people are not welcome in most churches so they have to do something where no one can really stop them. But they do some wacky things. We were just talking about a few years ago how Harold Camping said he knew the date of the rapture and everybody was just went crazy. Do you remember that happened in I think it was 2012? There's some crazy people and it makes you not really want to be associated with that. You know, people that have something difficult to say to you, so they want to wrap it in, I've got a word from the Lord for you, because it kind of makes them feel like, you know, they're, they're secure. I used to laugh at the young men in my youth group who would go to a young lady and, and either say, I think God wants us to be boyfriend and girlfriend, or the Lord told me I have to break up with you. Now, that can be true. That can be true, I suppose, but I used to tell them, boys, if you got something to say, just say it. Don't bring God into it. Just you do what you're going to do here. Now, we can laugh at that, and we can start to despise prophecy because of those who have abused it. I'm really glad that the Old Testament prophets did not despise prophecy because of the false prophets. I love the story of Micaiah in Ahab and Jehoshaphat's story. Because they said, let's go to battle together. And Jehoshaphat says, well, let's get a prophet first. And they bring in 400 prophets. And they are all saying, go into battle. And they talk about this one guy. I think his name was Zedekiah. But it said that he had fashioned two horns. And was saying, with these horns, you shall drive the enemy away until you win. And all I can ever picture is some dude with a Viking helmet on, like pretending he's, you know, driving people away. And then Micaiah comes in. And Micaiah starts to mock these other prophets. I'm really glad that Micaiah didn't say, if that's a prophecy is, I don't want anything to do with it. Instead, he said, I know that's not real. I want what's real. That's what we ought to do. 
is to be able to recognize false prophecy, and we'll get to that later, but to recognize that there is something true and legitimate and biblical that we ought not to despise. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul gives extended space to explain how this gift is to be exercised in the church, as well as other gifts, especially the gift of tongues and things like that, which I think would also fall under the application of this verse too. According to the Bible, the Holy Spirit empowers people to prophesy, to speak in tongues, to heal, to perform miracles, also to teach and to show mercy and to do administration in the church. These things should be permitted and encouraged. Now, here's another one I've heard. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary. Most of the folks there were what's called cessationists. They didn't believe in the, these gifts of the Spirit. But a lot of them would get caught in their own Bible study, and they would recognize now it would not be right for me to stand up and say there's no such thing as prophecy or tongues or whatever. But they would then say this. Now, what we want to be is open but cautious. Now, what that means is I don't like the thought of prophecy in the church, but I have no biblical reason to say no to it. And they would say, no one should ever seek to prophesy or seek to speak in tongues. You should never try to receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. If God gives it to you, let God do his thing. 1 Corinthians 14.39 says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. It's another one of those things that sounds very spiritual, but what does it say though? It says, earnestly desire these things. Just like he would say in another place to earnestly desire there to be peace and unity in the church. I think it's astonishing that the two things that God specifically singled out to not refuse and to not disallow, tongues and prophecy, are the exact two things that are almost always forbidden in most places. How did that happen? How has no one ever sat up and said, wait a minute, there's a verse that says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. There's a verse that says, do not despise prophecies. It's called quenching the spirit. It's called bringing things into the church that we're uncomfortable with, but we serve a miraculous, miracle-working God don't we? Read through the Bible. It's all full of stories of God doing amazing things through his people. Paul comes in and says, hey, the Lord promised that he's going to increase the amount of those things. So don't be the church that's going to refuse it. We give space for these things here, especially at our Sunday night prayer meetings. But honestly, I ought to give more. And I ought to make sure that I make it very clear that we see these things as important and necessary to the functioning of the church. I just kind of made some jokes about it, which I was just saying we shouldn't do, but I was. But we ought to be functioning in the Spirit enough that we sometimes will have a word from the Lord for somebody. Amen. That you're praying for somebody in the church, and you're like, you know what? I feel like this is something they need to hear. And you do it respectfully, and you do it kindly, and you do it without browbeating anybody. I think, I think the Lord has something for me to share with you. I remember one time I was praying for a good friend of mine who had been called to ministry but was... I didn't know this, but was considering, I don't want to be a pastor. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own life. And I was just praying for him. And the, the verse came into my head, Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, where it says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or without repentance. And I just texted him. I said, hey, man, thinking about you. This verse came to my head. Hope you're having a great time. He calls me. He says, Tyler, I was, when you text me that, I was praying to God, asking him to let me off the hook being a pastor. And you sent me a verse that says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And he says, I, I, I cannot thank you enough for that. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. I didn't know that. I just thought I was just saying a hello text. And now he's in the ministry this day. And the Lord is using him in some really cool ways. 
We need to make sure that we are not resistant to those things. And sometimes we can miss fire, but we can't be so afraid of that that we miss the real deal. We can't quench the Holy Spirit. You ought to seek what God wants to do through you and to let it out. The church needs prophets. It needs dreamers. It needs healers and miracle workers. It needs teachers. It needs administrators. It needs those who speak in tongues. Now, another thing we'll say is, well, I don't, really don't see why we need that. Well, it's not really up to you. The Lord is the one that gave the gifts because he thought we needed them. And, and contrasted to, let's just sit back and see if maybe God will grab me by the scruff of the neck and make me do something. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. As opposed to quenching the spirit and despising prophecies, Paul says, don't quench the fire. Get one of those big bellows things and make the fire bigger. Throw wood on the fire. Throw lighter fluid on the fire. Make it bigger because it's God. It's not some weird thing. It's the Lord High God. And he lives in your heart. Don't quench his power. There's all kinds of crazy excesses, and we're about to talk about that. But our default position is to submit to the Spirit and not look down on his work in the church. Do not despise prophecies. You might look down on somebody that abuses what they call prophecy, but don't ever despise the real deal. Because the Lord put it in the church for a reason. So let's read verses 21 and 22. But test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. These two verses communicate one idea. You can see how abstain from every form of evil is in parallel to hold fast what is good. I don't much love the punctuation where the ESV has 22 as a separate sentence. I would put a comma after what is good instead of a period. It's not a separate thought. It's not as if he's talking about prophecy and then says abstain from every form of evil unrelated. They're tied together. Now that word, the beginning of verse 21, but, connects it to the previous one. So he says, do not despise prophecies. You could read it, instead, test everything. Or, but make sure that you test everything. This is the correction to the other extreme. There's the idea that God never does anything supernatural in the church, and I don't want anything to do with it because it freaks me out. But you've also got the other side that that's really all that they're concerned about. Is where it's like, yes, more prophecy, more tongues, more miracles. Make some up if we can't find any real ones. Let's, let's make it happen. We don't have time to open our Bibles. Ooh, have you heard that one before? Oh, the, God was moving in so great, we didn't even need to open our Bibles. That always scares me a little bit when you hear that. He says that every prophetic utterance should be tested. So if you are getting nervous, here's a breath of fresh air for you. It should be tested. New Testament talks an awful lot about this. In the book of Revelation, he rebukes one of the churches because he said, you let that woman Jezebel in who says she's a prophetess. He says, you know she's not a prophetess. But then he's got this other church that he commends and says, you've tested those who said they were apostles but were not. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So you can put it this way. Beloved, do not believe every person who says they've got a word from the Lord. But Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Same thing in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18 says, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. 
And that's, that's how the Old Testament law got it done. <laughs> False prophets are going to die, he says. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? It's a good question. How do we know when something's legit and when it's not? He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. <laughs> there was a woman that came to my father, who was also a pastor, and she told him a couple things. She said, though God had told her that the nation was going to face a terrible time of famine, and she wanted him to start uh, handing out vegetable seeds to everybody in the church so they could plant their own gardens. And uh, he said, no, we're not going to do that. I don't believe that's from the Lord. And then uh, she came into the church. She had shaved her head as a sign. I'm not sure why it was a sign, but she, uh, that's what she said it was. And she said, the Lord told me that because you spend so much time on missions and not enough time telling people to go plant little gardens in their backyard, you have neglected the bride of Christ and God is going to strike your bride. Yeah, for real. Now, listen, that didn't happen. <laughs> that did not happen. So she comes in and she's saying some very fearful things. But the Old Testament says, look, if somebody comes in and they say some crazy stuff and it doesn't happen, you don't got to be afraid of those people. And under the Old Testament law, if you were going to go around speaking in the name of God and saying all kinds of false prophecies, you could be put to death for that. Now, some people want to say, then prophecy in the New Testament must not be the same thing because God didn't tell us to kill false prophets in the New Testament. Well, yeah, the Old Testament law put people to death for a lot of things. Disrespectful children would get stoned out in the public square. We don't do that either under the New Testament. That doesn't mean that we're allowed to have disrespectful children, does it? There's also a covenant distinction here. God says, I'm going to increase the prophetic gifts. So there's an accompanying grace that goes along with it. And I would, I would say that those schools of prophets that you had under men like Elisha probably were learning along the way how to determine when it was just their own gut feeling and when it was the Lord and when it was a deceiving spirit. So in the church, that same thing is functioning. So we don't kill each other, but at the same time, we test the spirits. God doesn't leave us at the mercy of anybody that comes around saying, oh, God spoke to me. But he gives us the command to evaluate what was said. And this is the problem. A lot of times we get so excited about prophecy that we think if we evaluate it or test it or run it through scripture, we're going to somehow quench the spirit. Don't ever be afraid of that. He says, do not quench the spirit. And then two verses later, he says, test everything. Paul warned in uh, Galatians 1, he warned against angels who would bring a different gospel. An angel appeared to me. Paul says, so what did he say? <laughs> That's more important. Muhammad believed he saw an angel. Joseph Smith believed he saw an angel. I'm sure there are lots of folks that have seen false fallen angels and believe that God spoke to them. But Paul's like, no, if they bring a different gospel, well, you know what? They're anathema too. John in 1 John 4 verse 3, he says that if anybody brings something other than the gospel, it's the spirit of the Antichrist. Don't let him speak. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. He says, nobody speaking by the Spirit of God can say that Jesus Christ is accursed. There's a famous one you've heard, right? Well, I know somebody who was speaking in tongues and they started cursing God. Paul says in the Bible, that's not possible. So if they were cursing God, it was not the Spirit of God that was speaking through them. Even in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So if somebody says, I have a word from the Lord and they speak, the rest of the church is to sit there and weigh what is said. Isn't that cool? It's not like we're somehow bound to this person who's got all this authority. 
And that's, I'll tell you what, that is the hardest thing to do as a pastor. There are a lot of hard things to do. One really hard thing is when somebody stands up and says, this is my word from God, and I know that it's not right. And it's got bad doctrine in it, or maybe it's wrapped up in some other thing, and I've got to say, I don't receive that. I don't believe that was from the Lord. Well, I'm going to break that person's heart, and they're going to never speak in this church again. It's like, well, just relax, Tyler. It's too important just to let it roll. The Bible warns not just against presumption, by the way, people who just want to speak and claim that God told them to say it, but against deceptive spirits. That's something going on too, that you might have some radical supernatural experience that you think God is speaking to you, but it could be a deceiving demon speaking to you. Well, how do I know the difference? Well, first of all, read your Bible and know what the Bible says. And I said, well, an angel appeared to me and told me that God had said it's okay for us to start smoking pot in church. Like, well, he might have said that, but the Bible tells us that we're to be sober-minded. So, no, we reject that. That wasn't God, whatever it was. Are you saying I'm possessed? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that all of us sometimes can be deceived. You've had times in your life where you thought God was leading you some way, and you come to the other end, you're like, oh, no, that was just me. <laughs> That's just what I wanted. So we've got to test these things. And he tells us in 21 and 22 how to handle these things. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. That's pretty straightforward. If somebody comes in with a prophecy that is right in line with Scripture and it's what the church needs to hear, hold fast to it. But if they're coming in trying to spread some false doctrine or some weird moral ideas, abstain from that. By the way, very quickly, in some of the older translations, every form of evil was translated every appearance of evil. That is a, a rather poor translation. I've heard this verse used to beat people down into some legalistic thing. Uh, I remember substitute teacher I, I had back in my Christian school. She said, you, you kids, you listen to that Christian rock and roll, but you drive down the road and somebody's going to hear it. They might think you're listening to satanic rock and roll, so you shouldn't listen to it at all. Because as it says in 1 Thessalonians, abstain from every appearance of evil. And of course, me being the young metalhead that I was, said, but I'm listening to songs talking about Jesus. It's just got a heavier beat and lower tuned guitars. And she goes, but somebody might think and you're not allowed to do that. You know, Jesus had a lot of people that thought he was doing really evil things, but he wasn't, was he? Because you didn't wash your hands on the Sabbath. You, you were eating grain on the Sabbath. You don't do things our way. He goes, yeah, and you'll get your donkey out of the hole on the Sabbath. Don't judge me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So just to be clear, that's not what this is saying. He's saying any form of evil. It's not what appears evil to somebody else. It's every way that evil might appear in your life. It's, it's an important distinction. So be liberated from that if somebody's ever tried to tie you up with that verse. They just try to take things that they don't like because they make them uncomfortable and they say, well, it's the appearance of evil. No, it's not what it means. I think the best way to handle prophetic word in the church is what the council said in Acts 15, 25. They wrote the letter to the churches and they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's our attitude to have. We might believe that God has spoken, but that doesn't mean you start throwing your weight around and telling people, you have to listen to me. Because I, I really think this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. There's humility there, and the person that you're speaking to hopefully will respond in the same humility and say, I think that's possible. So I'm going to not just dismiss this out of hand. I'm going to go home. I'm going to pray over it. Some traditions have become so obsessed with the prophetic word, so to speak, that they neglect the scripture. And that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. And, and it's caused some people to say, fine, I don't want anything to do with prophecy if it's that weird. But the Bible lays out for us a supernatural reality that does not untether itself from the Bible. 
So for some of us, you need to stop chasing down every, every charismatic speaker who seems like he's got something going or every worship leader who's, who seems like they got the spirit going for him or every so-called prophet and evaluate it by the word of God. We could talk about just that all day if we wanted to. It doesn't matter if it's cool or slick or fun. What does the word say? That's how we evaluate those things. It also, by the way, doesn't matter how big a following they have. Because there was only eight people that ended up getting on the ark, and everybody else was wrong. So we listen to what the Word says, right? Others of us, you need to be open to what God is still doing. Through a right understanding of the Word. Believing in a living, speaking God, who's poured out His Holy Spirit on all of us and speaks to and through us. Psalm 135 talks over and over again about the idols that have ears that can't hear and a mouth that can't speak and eyes that can't see. We serve a living God and he dwells within us. So it only makes sense, and it's what the Bible says, that he would be speaking to us. Don't quench that. doesn't matter what tradition you came from or what you're comfortable with. God is still speaking through his church. He wants to speak through you. He wants to speak to you. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Are you full of the Spirit? Jesus said in John 7.38 that those who come after him would have rivers of living water coming out of their heart. And it says that he was speaking there about the Holy Spirit that he was going to send. Are you full of that living water? Maybe you need to take some time to seek the Lord in humility and say, God, I believe that you're dwelling in me because I believe in Jesus Christ, but I want to see your power at work in my life. I want to see the gifts that you've given to me. I want to hear your voice because the Lord is not going to hide himself from you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Let's read now to verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Well, that's the end of the instruction portion of first Thessalonians. And this is just the benediction making our way to the end here. He prays for the God of peace to sanctify them and to keep them blameless for the day of Christ's coming. This is the last reference to the return of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians. There's been a lot of them. Our sanctification, as we already read in chapter 4, is the will of God. And he prays that God would complete that work. And this is the important thing to notice, especially in verse 24. He will surely do it. God is the one who sanctifies us. Now, we ought to strive our best to be holy and to obey, but ultimately it's God's work. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Your life is in God's hands. He's not just there to stare you down. He's not just there to grant all your wishes. He's there to be constantly saving you and constantly bringing more and more holiness into your life. If God is really in our midst, as we've been saying, things are going to change. We're not just going to have exciting meetings, but there's going to be change in our very souls. You can't invite the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit into your life and expect to remain unchanged. He is the Holy Spirit, and He wants to make you holy too. And you can quench the Holy Spirit morally. Did you know that? We were just talking about the spiritual gifts, but you can quench the Spirit morally too. You come to God, 
You have a great moment. Maybe you're in a worship service and, and whatever song it is is just speaking to your heart and you collapse it on your knees before God and you're weeping and God shows you what you need to do and then you get up and you don't change a thing. That's called quenching the spirit. We say no. And so often our spiritual lives stall out because there's a sin that the spirit wants to destroy or a weight to remove, or some other kind of thorn that he wants to get out, but we dig in our heels and we refuse. God can't work with that. Amen. God's like, I, I need you to be in obedience to me. And yet we want to go forward, we want more, we say, God, please give me more, but we can't hold more because we've been actively denying God's rights over us. I urge you to put your holiness in God's hands. Let him rip up your past. Let him open up the truth of who you really are. Like when Peter was on the boat and he said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And he said, no, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You've got to have one of those moments. It's painful, but the end of it is peace and holiness. If God is really here, we shouldn't just expect great power, but great transformation into the image of Christ. Don't quench the spirit. Trust that he's going to do what he promised. Verses 25 to the end now. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, that's it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy close out with the typical housekeeping matters. <laughs> all the other letters have these things too. They ask for prayer. Paul always asked for prayer in his letters. He was never too proud to seek spiritual help from those that he was teaching. They urge them to greet one another with a kiss. We see this a few times in the New Testament. Interestingly, I, I, I was reading this last time that culturally, you didn't greet one another with a kiss outside of your family, like especially in Jewish and, and Greco-Roman culture. That was kind of like today. But, you know, we, we don't kiss outside the family. And if you read the early church fathers, there was a whole lot of writing about the propriety of this. And I forget who it was. It might have been Irenaeus. But he was saying, there are some fellows in the church that just love greeting all the ladies with a holy kiss. And maybe we ought to just chill on that. Maybe greet one another with a holy high five ought to be better. But the whole point here is we don't really kiss outside the family. But he's saying, hey, the church is your family. Right? God has brought us together. And third, he says, read this letter to all the brothers. Hey, we're reading it. Isn't that neat? We are reading the letter that Paul sent to them. Colossians chapter 4, he would tell them, hey, I sent a letter to the Laodiceans. Read that one. And you send them their letter. Paul was intending that these letters would be spread out through the church. Sometimes folks want to be like, he wrote a letter to a specific people, therefore it doesn't apply to our situation. Paul's like, pass these things around. I want everybody to read them and everyone to benefit from them. And finally, verse 28 has a wish for the Lord's grace to be with them. The grace that saved you, he says, I hope that grace is constantly at work in your life at all times. So that's 1 Thessalonians. This is Paul's letter, but not just Paul's letter. Silas and Timothy wrote it too. To a church that had not benefited from a long period of instruction. So it's interesting that these are the kind of things that Paul is like, I didn't have a whole lot of time, but I want to make sure you know these things. Very informative, very encouraging. And for today, the lesson is that if God is with us, if God is really here in the church, things ought to be different. Amen. We shouldn't be quenching his power or stifling his influence, but God deserves full reign over your life. Whether that's related to the gifts of the Spirit or to your sanctification, let God have his way. He's a living God, and that makes all the difference. Your life and our life together is in his hands. And if you submit to him, 
And as we just read, he's going to be faithful to do all that he said in your life.